From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Wade Menezes. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Tuesday to each and every one of you. I hope you had a great 4th of July weekend. Father Wade Menezes is in the house. Uh, we may take some phone calls. Father's going to talk about his brand spanking new book. We'll get to that in just a moment. And in the back half of the program, we'll probably take some phone calls. So if you'd like to be part of that, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line if you are outside of North America at one two zero five two seven one seven two uh two nine eight five. Um you can always send us an email if you'd like to uh, join the program that way. The email address is openline at EWTN dot com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky, and I think Mr. McCall is probably doubling up on the social media end of things as well. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window. And uh, Rich Jesse, I'm told, is handling those duties for us today. But you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Tuesday, Father Wade Menezes, how are you? I'm doing great, Jack, and happy 4th of July week to all the team there. Uh, Good to be back with you and everybody this day, and I am excited to talk about my new book. The official rollout was a week ago today on June 28th, so now it's available at EWTNRC.com, and I'd like to spend uh, some time today with the show, both with the springboard uh, period of the first uh, nine minutes or so before our first break, and even beyond, talking about some of the content matter and uh, my purpose of writing the book, who's the audience that it's directed toward, etc. So I'm looking forward to this. Great, and it's a uh, it's a sequel to Gone with the Wind, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know if we'll see this one made in a movie, but uh, <laughs> you never know. EWTN might want to do something with it. EWTN, well, tell us, <laughs> yeah, tell us about Catholic Essentials: A Guide to Understanding Key Church Teachings. I certainly will, and I'm holding it up right now for those who might be watching the live YouTube feed at EWTN's YouTube page or the Facebook feed at EWTN Radio's Facebook page. Holding it up there, and, and yes, that's the title: Catholic Essentials: A Guide to Understanding Key Church Teachings, 81 chapters, all short chapters, purposefully so. Uh, Each chapter is right around three to four pages. Very, very few of the 81 chapters, Jack, go over four pages, and if they do, it's just like to four and a half pages. I purposely wanted these chapters to be short because of the nature of the book. It's a catechetical book on 81 different points of Catholic Church doctrine because of this reason. Many know what the Church teaches. Many Catholics know what the Church teaches. Many non-Catholic Christians, like our Protestant brothers and sisters, know what the Church teaches. Uh, Many non-Christians know what the Church teaches. Uh, Our our Hindu brothers and sisters, uh, Buddhists, etc., they know what the Church teaches. But very, very few in all of these camps, including Catholics, can articulate the why— the W-H-Y of the doctrine. For example, most people know, Catholic and non, that the Catholic Church 
is very pro-life and thereby is against abortion, or therefore is against abortion. Why is abortion considered intrinsically evil? Something that can never, ever be justified, something that can never, ever be done. Why is that? What are the particulars of that teaching? So that's a, that's a good example of the why of the book and its purpose with each of the 81 chapters on 81 different points of church doctrine. Uh, again, many know what the church teaches, but very few can articulate the why. And also, I wanted to write this book to convey settled doctrine, especially this year and partially next year, and even a little bit of last year in 2021, with different diocesan synods gearing up and parish synods gearing up uh, through the diocese uh, for the uh, big international synod in 2023. Three. And I've heard some Catholic married couples especially kind of um, disgruntled in a way and, and sincerely in a qualm of, of why their parish synod, for example, spent so much time during this two to three hour meeting at the church one evening, let's say on a Wednesday night, talking about just one point of doctrine that is settled doctrine. And they were very disheartened by that. It, it, they, didn't, they didn't want it to come to a gripe session, and that's exactly what happened. And they were very disedified by that. And, and I remember one of the wives asking me, why are we spending so much time on settled doctrine? Doctrine that comes to us through sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and the magisterium, the teaching office of the church, that's safeguarded by the sacred deposit of faith. The synod is a wonderful idea at the diocesan and thus parish uh, scale, and also the international one that we're looking forward to in 2023. But let's look at ways of promoting the doctrine, uh, not changing the doctrine if it's one that's already settled, huh? And, and, and so that was another reason why I wrote the book. Uh, f- and faith should be at the forefront of our daily lives. Uh, and I hope this new book will encourage just that, regardless of one's vocation or state in life. Um, you know, the Catechism of the Catholic Church tells us very beautifully, Jack, that faith is one of the three theological virtues along with hope and charity. But here's the thing, faith as a theological virtue is both a gift of God to the human person and a human act by which the person gives back to God their personal adherence to the God who invites their response and the person freely assenting to the whole truth that God has revealed, again, through scripture, tradition, and the magisterium, safeguarded by the sacred deposit of faith. The sacred deposit of faith itself being that heritage of faith contained in sacred scripture and sacred tradition, handed on in the church from the time of the apostles, from which the magisterium, again, the teaching office of the church from the Latin word magister, which means teacher, draws all that it proposes for belief as being divinely revealed by God, thereby enabling the individual believer to put themselves on the road to salvation, cooperating with God's sanctifying grace, which is always God's gratuitous gift as the primary mover, thereby working with God and putting himself on the road to salvation to work out his salvation as Philippians 2.12 commands us by St. Paul. When he tells the church members at Philippi, work out your salvation, it is God's will that you be saved. 
it is not God's will that you be reprobated. So again, uh, faith is both a gift of God and a human act by which the believer gives personal adherence to the God who invites his response and freely assents to the whole truth that God has revealed. It is this revelation of God which the church proposes for our belief and which we know through sacred scripture, tradition, and the magisterium, and which we profess in the Nicene Creed every Sunday at Mass with 40-some-plus truths, by which we also celebrate in the sacraments, by which we live by right conduct in the pursuance of virtue that fulfills the twofold commandment to love both God and neighbor, and to respond to in our prayer of faith. Faith is both a theological virtue along with hope and charity, given by God as a grace, and an obligation, an obligation that flows from the first commandment of God, quote, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt not have strange gods before me. So, just a little bit about the book, a little bit up front as to why I wrote it, uh, how I want faith to be increased by it, uh, and also uh, my dedication of the book. Uh, four pages in is my dedication page, and it reads thus, Jack. It says, For all who practice their Catholic faith with great fervor, for the lukewarm, and for those who have abandoned it, may you soon return. I've dedicated this book to three different categories of persons. Again, for all who practice their Catholic faith with great fervor, for the lukewarm, and for those who have abandoned it, may you soon return. I want the practicing fervent Catholics to become even stronger in their faith through this book, Catholic Essentials, a guide to understanding key church teachings. I want the lukewarm Catholics to become even more fervent in their faith, and I want those who have abandoned their Catholic faith to be guided to return to it and return once again to the sacraments of Eucharist and reconciliation, especially the two sacraments of the seven that can be received over and over and over again, huh? And then who did I write it for? I wrote this for apologetical reading for Catholics to better learn how to defend the faith, educational reading for Catholics and non-Catholics to learn the why of the doctrine. I've written it for spiritual reading for all Catholics and non-Catholics. For example, when Catholics go to make their weekly visit to the Eucharistic Adoration Chapel at their parish, take two or three of these short chapters, two or three or four of these short chapters that are just four pages or less, and learn more about the faith. Mark up those pages with a yellow highlighter or, or a red marker pen in the side margins of things that stand out for you in regards to the why of these doctrines. I've written this book, Jack, for directors of religious education, DREs for their catechumens in the RCIA program. I've written it for Catholic high schools, especially for juniors and seniors, although I strongly believe that even freshmen and sophomores could benefit from it. And I've also written this book, Jack, as a book of the month for clubs at parishes, although it'll take a little longer to get through those 81 chapters in just one month, but for book of the month clubs as well. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. 
EWTN's Religious Catalog is your online destination for gifts and holy reminders, as Mother Angelica used to call them. You can buy uh, Catholic by shopping EWTNRC.com today and receive regular emails from EWTN's Religious Catalog. Visit EWTN.com and simply rather click on subscribe. The number to be on the program is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Tuesday. Father Wade Menezes is in the house, as he usually is. Uh, today we're talking about his brand spanking new book, um, Catholic Essentials, A Guide to Understanding Key Church Teachings. And that, of course, is available also at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. So, you know, Father Wade, one of the beauties of our uh Catholic Church is the depth and breadth of uh, the, the various things that Holy Mother Church speaks to in our daily lives. Um, you know, most books that you see out there in, in the Catholic bookstores will zero in on a particular topic and really try to cover that particular topic in detail. Uh, you chose a different path for this book, and you, you're, you're covering a, a little broader area of... Uh, uh, material. Yeah, very, very well said. I, you kind of had me on edge there. I, I and material is a great word. <laughs> material is a great word there. Yes, and and I'll tell you why. Um, the eighty-one chapters, uh, Jack, are are presented in five different parent categories of that very material that you mentioned, um, and the five categories are morals, dogma ecclesiology, which is study of the makeup of the Church, sacraments, and liturgy. Uh, so, so 81 chapters in five parent categories, morals, dogma, ecclesiology, sacraments, and liturgy. Why did I do that? Because I want to convey the whole plan, quote, end quote, the whole plan for the sanctification of the human person. The human person comes from God, that's the great exitus uh, doctrine of the human person. We come from God, exitus in the Latin meaning from, out, out of or out from. And the human person is called to return to God. Uh, that's the reditus doctrine, R-E-D-D-I-T-U-S. We're called to return to God. So exitus and reditus. We come out from God, we're called to return to God. Uh, we are a body-soul composite as well. Uh, we don't have bodies, we are bodies. I've said this many times uh, in, in, in uh, conjunction with questions asked on Open Line Tuesday that it fits in. Uh, given the Thomistic teaching of the body-soul composite of the human person, we don't have bodies, we are bodies. We don't have souls, we are souls. This is how intimate and intricate the body-soul compositeness is and the dignity of the human person. Um, so much so that the Church teaches that, that, the, that the soul is actually the form of the body, the animating principle. Uh, we, we know the body has five, uh, five sentient powers, sight, smell, taste, touch, and hearing. Uh, the soul has four primary faculties uh, or spiritual powers, the intellect, the will, uh, the memory, and the imagination, and the first two are preeminent, uh, uh, the, the intellect uh, to know and the will to choose. Uh, and so those four are very important. So these 
nine component parts, uh, the five bodily senses and the four spiritual powers of the soul, these nine component parts of the body-soul composite are meant to lead us back to God and how we use them, right? Um, and also, I wanted to convey in these five parent categories, again, the morals, the dogma, the ecclesiology, the sacraments, and the liturgy, the harmony of faith and reason. Uh, John Paul II was a master in teaching that faith and reason uh, are the two wings on which the human spirit rises up to God, huh? It's not either or, faith or reason, or reason or faith. It's both and. It's both faith and reason, reason, both reason and faith. Uh, John Paul taught very clearly that, that faith without reason leads to religious fanaticism, but reason without faith leads to secular humanism, relativism, agnosticism, or for all practical purposes, an outright atheism, right? So, so we need both. They're, again, they're the two wings on which the human spirit rises up to God. And, and let me provide a very general, a very general uh, picture here, Jack, of how we've gotten to the state in regards to lack of faith that we find ourselves in today, uh, 22 years into the third millennium. Uh, with such things as the outright rejection of God, the increase of rage, the increase of violent crime, another shooting yesterday in Highland Park, a suburb of Chicago, um, uh, the response to Roe v. Wade being overturned. Let me tell you how we've gotten there. Now, I want to make it clear that this is very, very much a generalization, but it gets the point across. And I'm going to name five philosopher politicos here, and it conveys what I'm trying to say in presenting the, the beauty of objective truth in the book, okay? Here we go. Jean-Paul Sartre, the French philosopher, emphasized human freedom, but he denied human morality. Sigmund Freud stressed human instinct, but suppressed the spiritual realities of the human person. Friedrich Nietzsche glorified the individual, but disdained the community. Uh, one of his famous quotes is, hell is other people. <laughs> you know, he wasn't having a very good day that day. Uh, Karl Marx did the opposite. He celebrated the community, but rejected the individual, for example, individual rights of the individual person. He's the founder of communism, right? And then Charles Darwin was very, very enamored, in one sense, rightly so, of empirical science, but he excluded the reality of metaphysics, okay? So this is how we've gotten to the point we are today with this crisis of faith. And it's my hope that Catholic Essentials, a, a guide to understanding key church teachings, will help clear up some of these muddy waters. And again, I'm, I'm holding up the, the book uh, to our live YouTube and Facebook feeds. Um, beautiful picture of, of the dome of, of St. Peter's uh, Basilica Square there in St. Peter's Basilica on the front cover. And I want to thank uh, Sophia Institute Press, who did the marketing of the book in conjunction with EWTN Publishing, the actual publisher of the book. I want to thank both entities for putting together such a, a beautiful package of the book. Uh, it's available at EWTNRC.com, EWTNRC.com. Uh, but but I, I want to clear through these muddy waters that, that provide uh, 
uh, so much confusion in today's world in regards to faith, the existence of God, and so forth, and I want to convey the whole plan of the sanctification of the human person in these five parent categories, again, of morals, dogma, ecclesiology, sacraments, and liturgy, for the benefit of the whole formation of the human person. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Father Wade is in the house. If you've got a question about his new book, Catholic Essentials, A Guide to Understanding Key Church Teachings, or if you uh, just have a a regular question about faith, family, and fellowship, we'd love to have those calls at 833-288-EWTN. So, Father, um, any devout person, uh, your life your conversions should be lifelong, right? We should live a life of constant conversion uh, as we as we try to transform ourselves into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. Um, part of that is obviously formation and forming yourself. Talk a little bit about the importance of, of catechesis in general and lifelong catechesis in particular. Yeah, yeah, great, great question. Um, we have both a baptismal and a confirmation mandate uh, to fulfill, and that is an evangelization mandate that's tied to our own ongoing conversion process. There's two quotes, especially from the Second Vatican Council, uh, that I want to share on the air right now that really convey this truth beautifully. And the first one is from the Second Vatican Council's decree on the missionary activity of the Church, Uh, written for people of all states in life, not just clerics, not just laity. And it says this, quote, "...every disciple of Christ is responsible in his or her own measure for the spread of the faith." Each and every disciple of Christ is responsible in his or her own measure for the spread of the faith. That, that's just a great quote. That tells us something that, 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 that's true, that we have a mandate to evangelize. And secondly, uh, the Second Vatican Council's decree on the apostolate of the laity. So this second document now was written for the laity, non-clerics, non-consecrated religious, but men and women who are single, married, and widowed. And it says this, quote, "...upon all Christians rests the noble obligation." of working to bring all people throughout the world to hear and accept the divine message of salvation. Upon all Christians rests the noble obligation of working to bring all peoples throughout the world to hear and accept the divine message of salvation. So, that's another mandate. Okay, It's an imperative, and this is tied to our sacraments of baptism and confirmation to be good students of the faith and to want to share this faith with others, all in the process of our own conversion, which is ongoing and which constantly needs to be fed. Uh, You can't give to another, Jack, what you don't first possess. You have to possess it in order to give it. I think I've used the example before on Open Line Tuesday, you know, if, if two fathers of mercy... Uh, are playing uh, two-on-two basketball with another team of two Fathers of Mercy, and and one team has the ball, it's impossible for the one team member to pass the ball to the other team member unless he literally, not metaphorically, but literally first possesses it to pass it. He's got to possess the ball to pass the ball. And the same thing with the love of Christ that we want to pass on to others, the knowledge of the faith, 
the benefits we receive from regular Eucharist and regular confession. If we don't possess these things ourselves, we're not going to be very able to convey them to others. So you can't give to another what you do not first possess. And again, the purpose of this is so that we can work out our salvation. Again, Philippians 2.12, to, to put oneself on the road to salvation, cooperating with God's grace, which is always his gratuitous, gratuitous gift to us, as the primary mover in our lives. He's always the primary mover, but he desires we have an active cooperation with him and working with him to move ourselves towards salvation. Uh, this is why Augustine says in, in number 1847 of the Universal Catechism, the God who willed to create you without you does not will to save you without you. And St. Catherine of Siena kind of puts it a little more bluntly and succinctly. She says, without God, I can't, but without me, God won't. Uh, she also, another variation of that is, the God who made you without your cooperation will not save you without your cooperation. So is he always the primary mover? Yes. Is, the, is he always the primary mover in, in, the, in the life of grace? Yes. Is grace always his gratuitous gift to us? Yes. But does he desire that, that he not do it all, that we work with him as an active agent with an intellect, a will, a memory, an imagination, uh, five bodily senses to pursue the good, the true, and the beautiful to lead us toward him? Yes. And this is the message we got to get out there. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Wide open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. We'd love to hear from you today on this Open Line Tuesday. The number to be on the program, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Father Wade, Richard is uh, watching us. uh, Actually, Carlos is watching us on YouTube. And he wants to know, could Father Wade explain some of the rituals that are done in a Catholic marriage ceremony and how or when those came to be? I'm just curious. Yeah, and he asks specifically about the wedding ring being exchanged between bride and groom, and also some other things that we see, for example, like in the Latin America or, or Hispanic weddings, with uh, the, the lasso, the, the rope of, of, of being intertwined around the wedding couple. Um, I would have to do a little bit more research in that one, but it does show a, a binding uh, which feeds the reality of till death do us part, etc. Uh, but as the wedding rings is kind of interesting. Uh, it, it shows how it, it really spread from one culture to another, because it's so common that the exchange of wedding rings. But the earliest tracing of wedding rings can be actually traced back to the ancient Egyptians when they exchanged rings made from such things as braided reeds and hemp, of all things, uh, they, they placed these rings on the fourth finger of the left hand as they believed that these were the vein of love, quote-unquote, that ran from the finger directly to the human heart. Again, across cultures, the human heart. I said this on the feast day of the Sacred Heart Springboard, that uh, poetically speaking, across cultures, the heart is seen as the vessel of love, of groundedness, of anchoredness, of balance in the emotional life, uh, of love for the other, of the pasio, willing to suffer for the other, 
other. This is why the Sacred Heart devotion is so important. But, but rather than focus on some of these other things, uh, Carlos, I would say to focus more on the importance of what the matter and form is of each of the seven sacraments. And I touch upon this in the book a bit, uh, Catholic Essentials. For baptism, uh, it's, it's the wording, the, the form or formula, but we say form. It's the first name of the person, in, including their middle name, uh, so-and-so, say, say uh, John Thomas, uh, and then saying these words, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, all the while with the three-time immersion or uh, sprinkling uh, of the person. Uh, during the mentioning of the three, uh, the three names of the three divine persons. For confirmation, it's the name of the person, uh, so let's say John Thomas, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the matter is, that's the form, and the matter is the holy chrism, the blessed oil, and the laying on of hands by the bishop or his delegated priest. For Eucharist, it's, this is my body, which will be given up for you, do this in memory of me, and this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant, which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory of me, uh, or remembrance of me. So uh, th- these are the, the the words, the form, the formula of the sacrament of the Eucharist. And then for matter in the, in the Western Rite, it's unleavened, unleavened bread and grape wine. For confession, the form is uh, the words of absolution, God the Father of mercies through the death and resurrection of his Son, etc., 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 and then finishing up the absolution form or formula. And the, the matter is actually the sins themselves, and contrition and confession of those sins, and then the priestly words of the absolution doubly count not only as the form, but also as the matter. For marriage, it's the I do or exchanged audible consent, which can be another wording that's a approved by the the pastor of the parish where they're marrying, uh, but the I do, so to speak, the the exchange of consent verbally by the man and woman, indicating their mutual consent as man and wife. Uh, The matter is doubly that mutual consent and the matter of one man, one woman, uh, to live together as husband and wife and the consummation of the marriage, uh, to make it fully, fully valid. For holy orders, it's the bishop's specific consecratory prayer, the form or the formula, uh, asking God for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and it's a beautiful prayer, by the way. Uh, we heard it recently at the Fathers of Mercy on June 2nd, when two of our men were ordained from the diaconate to the priesthood, uh, Father Michael French and Father Joseph Morgan. And and the gifts proper, the, the, heavenly, the, the Holy Spirit's gifts proper to the ministry to which the candidate is being ordained, and this is all mentioned in that formula prayer, the, the form of the sacrament is that prayer per se. And the matter is the laying on of the bishop's hands with the consecratory prayer uh, also as well. And then the anointing of the sick, the prayer of the priest over the sick person for the grace of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of their sins. They have the option to go to confession first if they're auricular and can do so. Uh, That's the form of the sacrament, uh, the prayer of the priest over the sick person as what's given in the ritual. And the matter is the anointing with holy oil and the imposition of hands. There's a laying on of hands just prior to anointing the person with the oil. So in short, that's the matter and form. I could give you a whole hour on each one of these individual sacraments, matter and form, but in a nutshell, that's the matter and form of each sacrament. Um, and so while these other traditions, like the exchange of rings, uh, the lasso in the Latin right, in, in, the, in the Latin American uh, countries and so forth, uh, are very beautiful, and in fact, they're, they're 
even mentioned in the Catholic marriage ritual, the exchange of rings is, is first, the, the rings are first blessed. That comes first, the blessing of rings in the Roman rite ritual of marriage. Then, the, the, uh, after the blessing of rings, the exchange of rings comes right after that. So we bless them first. So the rings are actually a part of the marriage ritual. So you're right in that regard, Carlos, but, but they didn't necessarily originate with, with the Catholic Church. And then the lasso, I'm sure, comes from the Latin American countries, although I'm not sure specifically which one. And I'm sure it expresses some type of a binding or a together bringing the couple, showing that they're, a, a, you know, the old phrase, tying the knot, huh? That we even hear in, in, in an American colloquialism, they tied the knot. Well, the beautiful use of the lasso, this is actually given as an option in the Roman rite of the Latin church uh, marriage ritual for those cultures that use it. So great, great question. And uh, I talk about the sacraments individually in the sacramentology section of my new book, uh, Catholic Essentials, A Guide to Understanding Key Church teachings. Carlos, so if you think that might interest you, be sure to get a copy of that at EWTNRC.com. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Susan is in Melbourne, Florida. She's listening on Divine Mercy Radio today. Susan, you're on with Father Wade. Thank you. It's a great joy to talk to you both. Um, Father Wade, you mentioned about in your book something about um, exit and return. I ran across the same concept very briefly in a devotional, and uh, I wondered if you could expand on it a little bit and tell me what, what is that about. Sure. Well, God is the creator of all things, including us, and we are the only creature made in his image and likeness. Um, the human person is. In the created corporeal world, no other creature has that claim. You know, you go through the beautiful uh, hierarchy of creation, so to speak, uh, and I'll do this in a very profane way, a very basic way, but, you know, the gases and the airs, uh, the rocks and the minerals, uh, none of those things are made in God's image and likeness. God made them, they tell us something about God, but they're not made in His image and likeness. So the gases in the airs, the rocks and the minerals. How about the vegetative plants, whether crops or trees or fruits or grains or even um, the fresh-cut flower industry? Uh, all those, these varietal plants tell us something about God's greatness, uh, but they're not made in His image and likeness, as beautiful as they are. How about the brute animals, like cattle and horses and dogs and cats? Well, there, there's a multiplicity of these as well, the brute animals, but none of them are made in God's image and likeness, although sometimes I think cats think they are, you know, <laughs> I say that in jest. Actually, I like cats. I hope my friend Nadine's not listening, because she's got her cats. Anyway, um, you know, uh, none of these animals, these brute animals, are made in God's image and likeness, but they tell us something about about God. Only the human person is made in God's image and likeness. Now, all of creation comes from God and is called to return to God, but the human person, in a preeminent way, is returning to God to enjoy an eternity with Him. This is the great exitus, the Latin phrase exit from, E-X-I-T-U-S, as in Sam, exitus doctrine, we come from God or we come from out of God. And then we're called to return back to God, to enjoy an eternity with Him. That's reditus, R-E-D-D-I-T-U-S, returning to in the Latin, reditus, exitus and reditus. We come from God, we're called to return to God. And, you know, the, the latest longevity statistics for those of us uh, living on earth, 
uh, in the West uh, is, is uh, telling us that, that the latest longevity is, is around 78 years for both men and women. So the question is, what am I going to do with these 78 years? Uh, well, hopefully, the first six, first six, I'm not held morally accountable because I haven't attained the age of reason, which the church holds to be around age seven. So from age seven onwards to this average of age 78, how am I going to live this, this average of these, uh, these other 71 or 72 years or so? Well, hopefully, in pursuance of the good, the true, and the beautiful— in concrete daily actions, right, uh, to want to draw myself to a life of God's sanctifying grace, uh, Susan, and 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 wanting to draw more closely to Him. Um, so, so that's that's what I'm that, that's what I'm hoping for in in conveying to you the exitus and the ready true ready to. So, um, does that help you out at all? Oh, very much. That was very beautiful. Thank you. Great, great. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Lainey is watching us on YouTube, and she says, Please explain why we must go to confession instead of just asking God for forgiveness. I believe in this teaching, but I'd like a better explanation of why we do this. Thank you. Well, you, you can for venial sins. Uh, you know, the, the old uh, statement of, well, I don't need confession, I go straight to God. Okay, well, beautiful for your venial sins, uh, but for your mortal sins, uh, we know that God desires mediation. And since he came in his second divine personage and established his bride, the Church, which we know by her four marks, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic, we know that that mediation takes place through the new covenant priesthood, in the person of the priest, acting as an altar Christus, another Christ, uh, acting in persona Christi Capitis, in the person of Christ the head, for mortal sins. A mortal sin is grave matter done with fullness of knowledge that it's grave matter, and done with deliberate consent of your will. Grave matter, fullness of knowledge, and done with deliberate consent of your will. If all three of those are present in an action, then it's a mortal sin, constituted as such, and it needs confession. But if any one or two of those three elements are missing, you have a venial sin, and you can go straight to God. There's no problem there. Uh, you, this, is the, this is why we do the daily examination of conscience, uh, sometimes twice a day. The, the particular exam done at midday, uh, when we're looking at a particular virtue or vice, or, or just up to midday point, everything that we've done that midday, and we close it with an act of contrition to wipe away all venial sins. Or the general exam done at the end of the day before we hit the pillow at night, before we retire. So the particular examine, the general examine, the particular examine at midday, the general examine at the end of the day, about 90 seconds of examining your conscience, and you close it with an act of contrition of your choice. It could be the traditional act of contrition, uh, oh my God, I am heartily sorry for having offended thee, etc., etc. And, and why do we do that? To wipe away all venial sins. But mortal sins, ordinarily speaking, need the sacrament of penance. There is sin that is deadly and sin that is not deadly, we were told in the New Testament. And so um, the dead Deadly sins require those three elements to be present. Grave matter. It seriously contravenes God's moral law, and seriously so. Number two, you have fullness of knowledge that it does just that, that it, it seriously contravenes God's moral law. And number three, you do it with deliberate consent of your will anyway. 
So to understand why we have to go to confession, you have to simultaneously understand uh, uh, the differentiation between mortal and venial sins, because strictly, strictly, strictly speaking, only mortal sin needs the sacrament of confession. Venial sins do not. Now, that said, that said, show me a person who goes to confession faithfully once a month or once every three weeks— once a month, for example, in honor of the first Friday devotion to the Sacred Heart or the first Saturday devotion to the Immaculate Heart, and I've said this many times before in the past on Open Line Tuesday, show me a person who goes to confession faithfully once a month, for example, in in honor of those two devotions, first Friday or first Saturday, chances are, chances are, they will only have venial sin to confess. Why? Because it's precisely the practice in their spiritual life of making a good, holy, monthly confession that is per se keeping them away from mortal sin. And that's a beautiful thing. So there's many ways that venial sins can be forgiven. The act of contrition during your particular exam or your general exam, or the penitential rite at Mass. What's the whole purpose of having a penitential rite at the beginning of Mass? So that we, when we come up to Holy Communion a half hour from now, after the penitential rite, we won't even have venial sins on our soul because of the penitential rite having been carried out. And if you're knowledgeable of mortal sins on your soul at Mass, it's understood that you would not get into the, you would not get into the communion line, right? Until you're first reconciled. So there's many, way that, many ways that venial sins are forgiven, and indeed confession is one of those ways, along with the examination of conscience, along with the act of contrition, along with the uh, penitential rite at Mass. There's many ways that venial sins are forgiven, and one of those ways is confession. And if you go to confession faithfully once every three to four weeks, chances are it will be only venial sins that you're confessing. Now, that explains why we go to confession to the priest, because God desires mediation through his bride, the Church, with his priests in the sacrament of holy orders, acting in the person of Christ the head, in persona Christi Capitis, or as another Christ. So when the priest says the words of absolution, and I absolve you in the name of the Father and the Son, etc., etc., that I is not I, Father Wade Menezes, that I is Jesus Christ speaking through the priest to the penitent who just confessed. So that explains why we go to confession. Now, a few things about confession itself. Ten ways that confession sets us free. Are you ready to fasten your seatbelt? Because this is great. By healing. By freedom from slavery. By moving from confusion to peace in the moral life. By freedom from a conscience filled with guilt. That's number four. These are ten ways that confession sets us free. By joy. Giving us joy, rejoicing in the Lord. How about by benefiting from the Paschal mystery of our Lord Jesus Christ from death to life? The Paschal mystery being that four-event event of his passion, death, resurrection, and ascension. We partake more in the Paschal mystery through confession and the Eucharist. Uh, number seven, uh, by acting as a curative and preventative medicine from falling into future more grave sins, right? Number eight, by serving as an act of humility to help crush your pride. That's another way that confession sets us free. Number nine, by fostering growth in self-knowledge. This is a huge blessing that flows from a well-prepared and well-confessed confession on a regular basis, this increase of self-knowledge, right? Uh, You know, it was for this reason, by the way, that the Desert Fathers had a short but extremely important axiom for their hearers and their readers and their listeners, and that axiom was, know thyself. Know thyself. Know what 
are your natural virtues so you can advance in them supernaturally. Know what are your vices so you can begin to uproot them out of your life, right? So, so good self-knowledge. A person who examines his conscience well and confesses his sins well uh, will definitely grow in self-knowledge. By knowing oneself well, that is, one's virtues as well as his vices or sins, he can avoid falling into future sins. That's very important. Uh, number 10, uh, by fostering fervent and efficacious holy communions. Uh, is another great reason how confession sets us free. A well-received confession helps us to grow into more efficaciously received holy communions, and that's just a beautiful, beautiful reality. And then nine other short benefits of confession uh, I'd like to share. Uh, these are very beautiful. I talk about these in the book, um, uh, and, and these are very, very important. Um, Self-knowledge is increased. Christian humility grows. Uh, bad habits are corrected. Uh, spiritual neglect is resisted. In other words, you stay strong in the spiritual life rather than being lukewarm in it. Uh, spiritual tepidity or lukewarmness is resisted, in other words. Conscience is purified. The will is strengthened. A salutary self-control is achieved in things day-to-day -day in, in your daily lived experience. Uh, maybe you were slothful, now you're becoming not so slothful. Uh, grace is increased in virtue of the sacrament itself. Uh, these are nine ways that, that confession strengthens us overall in our daily lived experience, and those nine we call from the writings of Pope Pius XII and Pope St. Paul VI. Um, so those are both found uh, on my uh, blog site there at the Fathers of Mercy primary website. You can just uh, simply go to the search bar at fathersofmercy.com and, and put in 10 ways that confession sets us free, or nine benefits of confession, and you can pull either of those two documents. Uh, the 10 ways that confession sets us free is by a Father Broom, a great, great article on 10 ways that confession uh, sets us free. Uh, Father Ed Broom, he's an oblate of the Virgin Mary, and you can find that also doubly at catholicexchange.com, 10 ways that confession sets us free. Great question on confession. Thank you so much, and I talk about confession on, in several of the chapters uh, in my book in the section on the sacraments. Next up is Richie in the great state of Minnesota listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Richie, you're on with Father Wade. Well, thank you. Yeah, um, My question is whether or not um, honoring your mother and father is extended um, to your step-parents, um, especially if, you're, if your parents remarried after you're an adult. Okay, great question. Great question. So, first of all, let me give you the Church's teaching for one's natural parents, for those still living at home versus those emancipated from the home. We always, always want to honor our mother and father while living in the home. Okay, but once you become emancipated from the home, you become your own young adult and you moved out of the home, uh, while strict obedience is no longer needing, needed to be given, love, honor, and respect never cease, even after you move out of the home. Why does the Church teach that the strict obedience actually ends upon emancipation, that is, moving out from the home? Because the Church wants young adults and adults who think for themselves. The Church doesn't want 34-year-old mama's boys or 34-year-old daddy's girls or mama's girls or whatever. Uh, the Church wants young, responsible adults. So while living at home, 
Strict obedience falls under that honor. But once emancipated from the home, just through a natural process of moving out and getting on your own, uh, strict obedience is no longer needed, but love, honor, and respect are needed. Now, let's move this over to step-parents. For step-parents, the same thing would apply. I would hope the step-parents are married sacramentally in the church, because if they're not, they're living in sin, and how could they expect the, 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 the young person, the child or stepchild, to still give them that love, honor, and respect that never ceases even after emancipation, if they themselves are not setting it a good example by living in sin, by living in an unnatural second marriage that's not validated, because the first one in the church is still presumed to be valid and licit. So, so the basic answer to your question is strict obedience we give while in the home, along with love, honor, and respect, but once emancipated, the strict obedience ends, but the love, honor, and respect never cease. In other words, you still want to give dad a listening ear. You still want to be open to his advice. That's a great thing. Great question on that, by the way. It's a great witness question. And just uh, as, we ra- as we wrap up here in these final minutes, I just want to say a few of the 81 chapters that I think will be especially interesting to my readers, because I've already gotten a lot of feedback, both in emails and letters and so forth, appreciating these chapters especially. The importance of a rightly formed conscience and how that is achieved. The importance of making an annual spiritual retreat, whether single, married, or a consecrated religious. The difference between mortal sin and venial sin. The theology of the body in a day and age of transgender ideology. Why is it wrong for a man and woman to live together before marriage? These are just some of the 81 chapters, four pages or less, in my new book, Catholic Essentials, A Guide to Understanding Key Church Teachings. How about the Antichrist? The four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. The harmony of faith and reason and why we need both. God's mercy and the end times. The ministerial priesthood, meaning the sacrament of holy orders, and the baptismal priesthood of all the baptized, including the laity. How do those two priesthoods differ? How do they work together? The doctrine of transubstantiation of our Lord Jesus Christ, truly present in the Eucharist, body, blood, soul, and divinity. The proper placement of the tabernacle inside a Catholic church and the hierarchy of that preference of placement of the tabernacle. And the benefits of making a good, holy, frequent confession. These are just some of the short chapters in my new book that I'm holding up here to the YouTube page and also to the Facebook page, Catholic Essentials, a key guide, a guide, excuse me, to understanding key church teachings. So again, apologetical reading for all Catholics to better defend the faith, educational reading for all Catholics and non-Catholics, spiritual reading for all Catholics and non-Catholics alike, um, and also uh, DREs, Directors of Religious Education, That's very important for them. Hopefully their catechumens will benefit from this book as well. Catholic high schools, the theology courses, especially the juniors and seniors, but also the freshmen and sophomores as well. And also the Book of the Month Club at parishes. It'll take a little longer than just four weeks to get through the 81 chapters, but doesn't mean that a parish uh, Book of the Month Club can't take this on for a three-month period. And let's say the men of the Book of the Month Club for the men meet every Wednesday at 6 a.m. in the parish hall before they break for work at 7.30. They meet for that 90 minutes. They can go over three or four of these short chapters and talk about the doctrine. Again, uh, proposing the why the Church teaches what she teaches. Many people know what the Church teaches, but few can articulate the why. My purpose of writing Catholic Essentials, a guide to understanding key Church teaching, is to present that why the Church teaches it. 
And the book's available at EWTN's religious catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with each and every one of you this day and always. And as my... My ink pen says here, Jack, St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us on behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven today, Mr. Rich Jesse. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with Father Mitch. Until then, God bless. <laughs>